0: Welcome in, guys. Nick Wilson back on. Guess what, Coach? I've got two very special guests with me today, and I'm, I'm really excited about having them, having them in. But it's it's Rush Probst and David Murphy, two legendary coaches in their own right, and they both you guys both coached with each other back in late in the late '80s, early '90s at Asheville, and you know, just kind of kicking everything off. I want to ask about. You come in, Coach Probst, and you inherit this Asheville squad from Coach Clark, Reagan Clark. What was that transition like? Because that was your first stint as a head football coach, correct? Absolutely. How did you approach, you know, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, knowing what you know now, but being a first-time head coach, what was the thing that you were the most concerned about inheriting the program? here
1: at Asheville? Well, first, being here with Coach Clark was a blessing. Uh, You know, David played for me uh, and Coach and Bill and John, Bill Clark and John Gross and Reagan Clark, and and we all came in there. In 87, this program was about left for dead. Mm -hmm. You know, it was was in bad shape. You know, there was no weight room, there was no off-season, there was no facility, no field house, Absolutely nothing. And Coach Logan, the principal at the time, who was one my assistant coach when I was at Ohatchee High School, who hired me along with Coach Clark, we would built that, he had built the stadium and he'd put a lot of effort in getting that done. I applaud him for doing that. At the time, if you remember the old Asheville field, it was really bad. And so I applaud him for doing that. And he told Coach Clark and myself when we got here look, you know, facilities are not here. You know, and the program's dead. I mean, it's in bad shape. So, for whatever reason, you know, I came for for two reasons. One, to work for and Clark. Two, to work for Ken Logan, to be back with family. So, being there for those two years was a blessing. Uh, going through the hard times, 0-10 and, and 87 as an assistant coach, me and Bill and John, and talking about the 88 season, of getting that team ready and trying to, to get it back established, which we did. Uh, we went 5-5 five and five and got beat on basically the last play of the game against Sardis. They were ranked number one in the state, and we lost them in 88 up there in the first round. But we turned the corner, and then obviously the tragic tragic death of, of Judy Clark, and, um, and then Coach Clark telling me in February that he was not going to stay, And I think a lot of times with Coach Clark, he had to pass that wreck site every day Mm -hmm. coming here. And I think it just emotionally got to him because he just lost his best friend and a wonderful, wonderful person in Judy Clark. I don't know if I've ever met a better coach's wife. And so taking this program over in 89, it was done the correct way because Coach went through spring with us, if you remember. He went through spring practice with us. He didn't tell anybody but me. I'm the only one that knew. We went to Florida in February to talk about it. He wanted me to have the job, so he wanted to go through spring and take it to the very end where basically they had to give me the job, I guess. But uh, Joey Ray was the superintendent at the time. And so taking this program over, my biggest concern, to answer your question way back, was that facility-wise we still had the ways to go. You know, that, that was a big thing. And getting kids bought into um, the way you needed to do things in today's world or at that time in 89, 90. Now, I, I applaud the players that played for me because I was a young football coach, young head football coach at 31 years of age. So they had to go through my trials and tribulations as a head football coach and the mistakes I made – and hiring staff, uh, hiring you know, making decisions, what we did offensively, defensively. You now it was it was good in '89 because I had Bill and had John. Mm-hmm. You know, Tom Sanders was with us at that time, and so we had a good staff to you know for this level. We had a really good staff, yeah. and so and we worked extremely hard. But you know, back then. We started out and had a quarterback named Robert Brewster, if I remember right. And we, we ran to sort of the Georgia Southern double slot option, which Coach Clark was a big option guy, too. I played for him at O'Hatchett. We were wishbone. So we kept those philosophies, and, uh, which is so different now. But through time, we transitioned into the wing tee. Because if you remember, Robert E. Lee was having a lot of success in the state of Alabama, winning state titles, and they were running the wing tee. good friend of mine, Jimmy Perry, was on that staff as the O.C., and I spent a lot of time with him. So we transitioned into uh, that offense. But here, the biggest thing what people don't realize is that during that time frame, I was the defensive guy in 89-90. Bill was the offensive guy.
0: Really?
1: Yes, so, basically, Bill sort of ran the offense. I sort of ran the defense. And, you know, it's crazy, but we both went our different ways. If we let, You know, Bill's become a defensive genius. And then offensively, you know, we've done really well for the last 20, 25 years. So, uh, but concern was always, Bill and I talked about it and John, we wanted to get our numbers up, you know, increase our numbers where kids wouldn't have to play both ways we wanted to make sure kids had a really strenuous off-season program you know to where they got stronger and more physical um, you know and just just to grow your culture of winning yeah. and that's the biggest thing at any school you got to grow your culture on how to win
0: well, so you know you talked about getting those kids out because that's huge at a small school because oh. I mean I mean especially back then this is, you're in a small rural town small country school. How did you get the Hall Walkers
1: out? You know, I'm from Ohatchee. I grew up at Ohatchee. And, you know, Coach Clark had built a great program there and I'd played with it. In his his last three or four years that he was there through 75 was my last seed. I graduated in 1976. So I had been around it, Mm -hmm. you know, and watched him cultivate and how he cultivated, how he did things as a player and then, as a coach, you know, I learned a lot from him. But getting kids out is, is the biggest challenge you have at any school. Because at the time I got here, there was not a lot of tradition. You know, I don't know that they had won a playoff game, and if they had, it maybe won one. They had not been to the playoffs a lot, so football was not important here. Basketball was important, but football was not. And so we had to create a culture that football was important, number one, and to convince kids that there was a future in football. That's hard to do. I mean that's very hard to do. Especially in a rural place like this because they got so much other things that they do. They work. Most kids work. You got the lake sitting down here, you know, you know, to spend time at the lake. You know, although I don't know how many kids we had that had places on the lake at that time, but uh, but anytime you're in a community like Ohatchee, like Asheville, like Heflin, which I'd been at Heflin for five years, you have to develop something that attracts them, attracts them. So I think now, not to be critical of the past people that had been here, I don't think there was a culture of off season to where they had an off season, re- what I call a really good off season. And where they can look themselves in the mirror and go, man, I am getting bigger. I am getting stronger. I feel better about myself. So, the self esteem you build, the strength gains are one thing, but the confidence you build in gaining strength is probably just as important, if not more important, than the strength to gain. So, I think that conditioning program, investing and sacrifice, I think you have to invest. You have to sell them on sacrifice. And, and what's the end goal? You know, the end goal is to be successful and maybe you, you, you take your talents to, a, to another level, you know, a different level. Like we had some to do, you know, and we had kids to go on and play college football. And I think, as you know, today's world, that is college football and getting into college football it can be very financially lucrative now. But back then, it was just getting your education paid for.
0: What was that like for you, David? I well, am transitioning into that spot as an assistant coach. Well he first, was your coach. Yeah, first of all though, yeah, he was your defense
2: coordinator when I played. Now, first of all, we didn't have a good weight room and a good weight program till y'all got here. Right. And we had never won a playoff game
1: until right. we here. won in
2: ninety two. Now yeah. we went in eighty six and played Pennington and got beat. And then we went in eighty eight and played Sardis and got beat. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it it was a total change night and day when they when they got here. What
1: was it
0: like when he took over for you as an assistant? You know, like talk about your perspective on when he came in and you came to work for him. Now what it you, was like for you? Before you talk, you, before you talk about,
2: uh, well, you didn't mention me as being a good assistant coach a while ago, <laughs> and, and and one other coach you left out that you didn't talk about was Pegasus Gallimore. So don't leave him out. Lord of mercy, now look, forget. and also don't forget about going to Deschler. And talking to Tandy Gerald about wing, wing take. take yeah. After they won a state championship. And we went also, up there. we took that trip to East Carolina and took, talked to Bill Lewis. Supposed to talk to him about split 60, but of course, they had changed to the 4-3. Right. We to us About that.
1: Well, you know, so, you're right. And I think that, you know, we wanted to talk to him about the eight-man front because I'd been a defensive guy with, you know, in Heflin, we go 0-10 again as an assistant, in 82. I, I ordered a book. This is a great story. I ordered a book off that book club, f- you know, and you could get athletic books, football books, you know, now, and then it went to tapes and all that stuff. And I ordered a thing called Attacking 60 Defense. I read that book inside and out in January, during the offseason after the 82 season, and we instilled that. Well, at the time, Georgia just won a national championship with Bill Lewis as a defense coordinator, Ert Russell. Bill was actually the uh, secondary coach. But my point being is that that was the thing to go to. I mean, you'd go over to that Georgia clinic. I don't remember if you went with us, David, to the Georgia clinic. But we had gone every year. There were 1,700, 1,800 people at that clinic, and it was the only clinic going on. They was not like it is today. We learned a lot with that defense. And so that defense really catapulted us defensively to have a really good run after that 83, 84, and 85 at Heflin. And then we brought it here, you know, and Coach Clark had been more of a wide tackle, six, four, three. Mixture of a lot of different things, and he he was so innovative, and and so there was a combination of what he wanted to do versus what we wanted to do, and it mixed very well because again it was eight man front, and then um, if you remember Pierce Wendell was at Dave he was running what they called cover five at the time, and no one knew what that was, no one could had defended that, and we had a kid named Shane Thomas later on. Then end up being our quarterback, breaks the collarbone, we end up moving him to safety, and we could play things so much different over there in the secondary. Um, and it really, really helped us out. But I think, you know, with with the with the coaches we had and really with all the re- the, the what resources we had here, I think we squeezed that lemon pretty good. You well, know? I remember
2: right, we played Shane. Then we play it like eight yards deep. Yeah. Safety. He yeah. knocked the Ohachi quarterback out. He, he he was, was a like guy running that alley.
1: Basically, he, he, was he was a rover. He was a rover. He didn't have deep third. He didn't have deep third uh, unless they got into a certain set. He didn't have deep third uh, responsibility because we played. If you remember, the corners way inside, like four to five yards inside, eight yards to nine yards off, we dared people to throw to the perimeter with number one receiver, which a lot of people just couldn't do that with consistency, especially on this level. So would it work today on the 7a level 6a level probably not in today's game with the with the uh, uh, passing game is so advanced it is but it worked for us then because really it was more an eight man front it was that ninth guy that you could get in the box from a physical physicality standpoint so there's a lot of things that you learn and you cut your teeth on um when you're in a school like this you have to experiment so what you run offensively in your philosophy may not be what's best for the talent you have. And, okay, that, and, and that's, I, that's, that's huge right
0: there, yes. what you just said. So, you know, I heard somebody say, and I cannot remember the name of the coach that told me this. You know, we, we talked to Bill Clark about two years ago when we went into his office at UAB and talked to him, and uh, that he might have been the one that told us this, but he said when he was at Asheville under you that he learned more about the game of football than just about any, anything or from anybody else. And I think, David, you've, you, I think you've actually said the same thing to us when, when we were talking about you, Coach. How the heck? Like, I'm a young coach. And to all the other young coaches out there, you know, I think you, you kind of hinted on it when you were talking about the clinic and talking about the books that you read. How can we immerse ourselves productively in the game so that when those of us that want to be coordinators and head coaches, when we get those spots are prepared because I feel like, for me, it's a little overwhelming, you know, coming from high school and going through college, knowing the basics of the game, and then getting into coaching and realizing, well, crap, I don't know anything, you know? How do I, as a young coach, learn as much as I can, as fast as I can, and be the best scheme guy that I can be?
1: Well, the first thing you got to do is I I think young coaches today, I really believe this, especially the ones I've interviewed in the last 10 years, they're wanting instant gratification. They want to be instantly successful at a young age, and I think that's a huge mistake. And I think when you take somebody like me or Bill that have – we've coached every position, both offense and defense. And I think being at a small school is way more an advantage than being in a big school where you're just specializing in one group. You've coached linebackers at a 7A program, and that's all you've ever coached. That's probably all you've ever studied, you know, and now all of a sudden you want to be a coordinator and you've never coached the secondary. You've never coached the D-line. You've never coached the outside backers. You've never coached nickel defense or dime defense. Or, you know, what Saban and them are going to get into this fall is that, that one 4 six deal, which they're going to have to play one D lineman on the field at one time, uh true D lineman. You know, so there's – I think that you have to be – you have to study the game. I mean, and, and I don't think – I think everybody wants the Friday night to wear the coach's shirt, to wear the hat, whatever, you know, and they want to look at me, I'm a coach, but the grinding – what I get excited about and always have from a young age is I like the grind. I like I like the 14, 16 hours on Sunday. I like the six to eight hours on Saturday. I like uh, going home Monday night or Sunday night at midnight, Monday night at midnight, Tuesday night about 10 or 11 o'clock, Wednesday about 8 o'clock, Thursday night's you're off. That's your only off night. And so to me – if you don't embrace the grind of work you know because you have there's so much film and so much studying to be done the game has become very complex and if you're not you're not adapting your game as from a knowledge perspective then you're in the wrong profession i see a lot of coaches in today's world they'll be in it for a while they'll get out of it and get an administration or they'll or they, or they won't stay in it long because of those things, because of the workload that it requires to be successful. I, I think most young coaches, I mean, like my, my son, uh, Thomas, he's 18, to be a senior at Piedmont this year. He's talked about going into coaching. I think my older children, Jacob, who's 31, and Brian, who's 29, they didn't get into coaching. And I think the reason was is they saw how much it took me away and how much of the grind – that they saw um you know Thomas has not seen that in the last year because I was I didn't coach last year, his junior year, sophomore year he saw it, but we were limited because of COVID. So I've told him, I said, look son, if you want to get into coaching, then you gonna have you, you better be willing to to work mm-hmm. and to grind and, and you better embrace the grind. And so um and I'm not going to speak for who told me this, but you, you think Coach Saban, for example. You know, he's a great example to use. I bet you he'll tell you, because I've heard him say this before in meetings, that the grind, that routine of him getting up in the morning and having a cup of coffee and watching the Weather Channel for 10 or 15 minutes, driving in, getting to his office between 7.20 and 7.25, being in a staff meeting at 7.30, working. He used to work till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Now he don't work that late. But, you know, that, that grind, that's what excites him. And I think a good football coach, you know, like, for example, what, that bothered me. So this past year when I was out of coaching, I mean, it run me crazy. I mean, I couldn't stand it. You know, about that second week of August, which is coming up this week, mm-hmm. is when it really hit me. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, and then you all of a sudden you're just sitting there twiddling your thumbs. You're used to grinding and, and working all the time. you got all this time on your hands, and it, it's not fun. And so, uh, to me, and I'm 64 years old and still want to work 80 to 90 to 100 hours a week. You know, and I, I love, I cherish that. I want to do that. And I think that's what's driven me. It's what drove Bill. John all of us you know to that point now you know I, I don't think there's a substitute for hard work I don't think you can cut corners and and you know I hear young coaches say all the time well you got to work smarter you know you got your and, and I, some of that I agree with but there's a certain amount of time like film watching you know and you're sitting there and watching film and you can't just hurry it up yeah. You you got to watch it. You got to grind. I know there's you we know, all the computer stuff that we have now and all the technology we have now. It's way easier to do it, and it does cut down some time. We've found ways to cut time. Uh, you know, to where you know you take your younger staff, and they they got a lot of stuff for you when you get there on Saturday morning for your next week's opponent. So yeah, there's there's some things we've been able to to, to cut down a little bit. But uh, again, if you're not willing to grind. And you're not willing to work those kind of hours, then you're not going to be very successful.
0: What was the What was the hardest you remember working, David, under under coach? Well, hey, you ride
2: hours. You go, you gonna work. If you work for a uh, coach Probst, you gonna put in the hours. And I don't remember you giving us Thursdays off. <laughs> I don't remember that. But, but what, what I was thinking I
1: got about. Smar- I've gotten yeah, smarter.
2: You know, what I was thinking about, it was not only the, the football hours and the X's and O's. It was like sprigging the football field oh, up yeah. here. Mm-hmm. Stuff, you know, stuff. it's always something like that. It's, oh, yeah. You know, physical labor, not just the X's and O's, like in a small school. I remember us doing, doing that up there.
1: You remember we had a bad winter one time, and David and myself and I guess John Gross was with us in at that time. And um, Tom Sanders, and we hand sprig- sprigged that. Everything was dead from the hash inside, And Coach Logan was having a fit, so we sprigged the whole field from hash to hash inside.
2: That was me and you. Was I, they? They wasn't there. I did You went to heaven <laughs> and got that pallet of salt. I, I remember that.
1: I remember and me that. and you
2: did that. I remember. We cut it up and sprigged. Yep. And yeah, Logan, Mr. Logan, he come up there and had, had a fit. He was worried about it. We he heard a sprig. We sprigged it. And- Turn the sprinklers
1: on. And- In the middle of the night, I remember this, we only had four, four sprinklers, or five, I think four or five. <laughs> and Logan wouldn't buy us anymore, because so, they're pretty expensive. Anyway, so it, you'd put the water on when we left at 9 o'clock, if you remember, on yeah. one side. Well, at 2 o'clock,
0: you had to come change You them.
1: had to come change Between 2 and 2.30, they'd come up here and change them. Yeah, I do remember that.
0: So, you, so you'd get up, come up here, or David would. Yeah. Change them. Well, I'm sure you had us on a schedule.
1: We had, we change did. You, ch- and you change them. Yeah, you change them because you had to have it. And then, then the next morning, when you got there early, you you yeah. you know turned it off. But I mean, and it, by the time we played the first ball game, um, I can't remember who we played that year. Thinking, I think I think it was Raglin at home. I, I know it's what it was because we'd gone to Raglin and '90 over there, and uh, they, they I beat us. I think they beat us on a, on a last second play. And then we come over and played them here, and we beat them eight to seven. That was ninety one. You remember that? And uh, I remember. some
2: then they threw a halfback pass the very first play and scored? Yes, but I think we that was up here. I think yeah. we beat them. here.
1: We beat them here, but okay. over there, that that quarterback, that that kid that ended up transferring the following year to Trustwell, threw a last second pass at about thirty yards out and scored on us to beat us at the end of the game. That year we went one and nine. My second year as head football coach here, but.
2: Um Yeah. No you no you clinics. Now you huge on clinics bad. and taking notes. You talking about bad. how you learn. Huge yep. on clinics and taking notes and us going to all the clinics in the, what in, was, the what in the in the spring. Auburn, Alabama, Georgia, Georgia Tech. Tech. I remember
0: going to Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech was.
1: No, it's not the best one. I just think we Georgia, Georgia we we'd pick out four or five, you know, and and a lot of times and it got as years rolled on, you didn't go as many clinics that you just went and visited. Because once you build a reputation of who you are, you could be invited in to a to a clinic. I remember Norm Malzone when he got to Auburn. You know, he started a one back clinic in 01, 2001. I went to that one back clinic all the way till probably 2010. And his only people that was in the spread, he invited everybody that was sort of doing everybody doing the same thing, and we'd spend three days of just grinding it out. Now, I'm talking about from NFL guys. You know, to like for example, and at Hoover going into 05, we had pl- we were going to play Tim Tebow and Nice. They were loaded, and uh, we had to uh, we had to come up with some different stuff. So David and I flew to Pittsburgh, went to see Rodriguez and Trickett at West Virginia. Believe it or not, went to the Naval Academy. We had a player up there at the time, um, and then that one back clinic. Dennis Erickson that was at San Francisco 49ers at the time, we came up with three different concepts that no one had seen in high school football. We, in, we installed it that summer, spring, summer, kept it under wraps, shut down practice where nobody could see, and beat Nice on national TV. And, and But that's that's some of the things you have to do is you, you, you have to, do, okay, we got this particular player, like Jeremy Jones here at Asheville, we had Jeremy Jones at Asheville. So was it better to play Jeremy at the running back, which he was really good at, or was he better to play at that wing back? Because you could you still do the same thing with him. You could at the running back, but you can get him involved in the throw game better. So we used Jeremy's talents, and we we designed stuff in the throw game with Jeremy. Two could throw the he could throw it very well. We had Sonny Tibbs at receiver. We had Scott Seay right at tight end. Jones, Jeremy at the, at the wing back, Countryman at half back, and John Perry at the fullback. And if you remember this, David, we, in 92, we threw 13 or 14 touchdown passes in four playoff games. So we, we were really advanced in the throw game out of the wing tee in 92 because you had somebody like Tibbs with speed, then Jones could do everything. There's nothing that Jeremy could not do.
2: I coached him up too. You I did was a great job. Coach
1: and West Monday he was signed
2: you... at Division One scholarship. Remember at, at where. At the Mississippi State.
1: Mississippi State. Yeah, exactly and, right.
2: And then T.O., you know, there's no telling. I watched that highlight film last couple of days. one of him
0: it. into the end zone? And it's just. And
2: falls back? Yeah, we threw, it, we threw it, yeah. We, oh, we okay. threw it all over the place. T.O.'s ain't no telling how many. I wish I knew. I wish I had the stats. I, I wish I knew how many he caught, how many touchdown passes he caught.
1: And yeah, he could run, man. Jeremy, could, too. Yeah. But that
2: 1990, you mentioned Georgia Tech clinic. You know they, won, they were national champions. Co-champions. So that was a good clinic to very, go to. And then we went good. up to East Carolina, met Bill Lewis. We were the only ones. Just us. He That's met it. just with us. That's and right. there was some coaches up there from New Jersey mm-hmm. that were there for some reason. It wasn't a clinic. He was no. just meeting with us. No,
1: because I'd, I'd built a relationship. Because I'd gone over there for five or six years when I was at Heflin. And I'd spent the night with him. I'd, you know, they'd put me up in a dorm at Georgia, and I'd sp- stay in meetings with them you know, all week long. And just like Coach Saban has la- allowed me to come to playoff, once my season's been over, I'd go to their playoffs practices, and I'd spend the whole week there. I was in every meeting, from his meetings to the offensive staff meetings, you know, and, and then go to practice and then stay there until whatever time, watch him film at night. Yeah, so, Bill
2: Lewis, he, he let me go on the field with a camera. I mean, I was there I in the that. drills,
1: yep, filming the
2: drill. And they were loaded that year, too. They, they were like 11-1. So, so you
0: were filming year. drills? Yes, I was in here? the drills filming oh. with a
1: Camera, on yeah, my yeah, shoulder. Yeah, it was one
0: of those, like, you yeah, know, the yeah. boat anchors yes. back in the day. What year was I mean, that? I was on the field right there filming everything. 1989,
1: 90, 91. When we went up there, yeah, mm-hmm. that was 90, 91, somewhere around
2: in there. Or that may have been, a, yeah. was 80, 89 because yeah, Bill was with us. Yeah, that, yeah, he was. Spring. Yeah, you're right, spring 89. Cause spring I 89.
0: Because I had just started. That's right. That spring. What uh, I was doing high school. What's the funnest yep. memory you have of each other? Yeah, that's probably co- yeah, but it. But we can't talk about it. There's something we can't talk about.
1: That
0: probably that trip. That trip. Yeah, but we can't. That's all okay. we're gonna talk okay. about. We, we, we got to stop that. far as far as we, right, far far we can on go on that one. But funnest memory I, up here, around here, being doing stuff like well, in just and on that's the stuff I
2: think about working on the field. Yeah, the field, and for some reason I just think about. You know, we were redoing the weight room, putting, and we had to move the weight room out to the tractor shed yeah, okay. for a while. And I don't know why you did this, but <laughs> I think you got to chew a tobacco. You didn't even chew tobacco. but no, you gotta, I didn't. You had to chew a tobacco, and they're getting up in people's
0: faces and squats and stuff. Was that on purpose, <laughs> putting the chew of tobacco in, so that when know, you I yelled know. at him? It...
1: I guess for a little while, but I didn't chew long, and it made me. No, it was
0: that one time.
1: One time, but you know, we, we we did have another trip. We we went to the Alabama National Championship game. Yeah. It was David, Mike Harden, uh, Brandy. What's her last name? Adkins. Adkins, and Candy Stewart, and Jennifer Kale, I believe. Yeah, and,
2: Brad Smith. and oh, Brad Smith. He's bringing all this up now. And oh, we had, we, had a,
1: we had a we <laughs> did. I didn't bring
2: it up. I didn't bring it. But
1: up. we had a great time. We had a good time, and it was to this day. To this day, that's probably one of the most enjoyable trips. But what was made it more enjoyable is Alabama. Beating Miami, I've never been in a stadium louder than that game. I've never, I've been to a lot of Alabama games. I've been, I've seen them in in a frenzy, but it seemed like thirteen years of bottled up frustration came out, and Miami had no chance yeah. that day. But it was a lot of fun. But you know, going back to the coaching part, we we, uh, you know, you, there was things you did. Um, on Friday nights after ball games or Saturdays, we'd get together and have socials at people's houses. Um you remember the Arbles used to have us over and we'd have crawfish bowls and it's a fake. well, talk talk about that. I mean the the brotherhood
0: because a lot of times we We're, always talk about the scheme, we always talk about the kids, we always talk about the culture, but you don't hear coaches talk a lot about the brotherhood that is coaching the fraternity as it's called sometimes. Give us give, give me kind of your experience across. Well, both y'all's careers of examples of that. Well,
1: you, what you what you find yourself doing is that's your only friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that your staff because you don't have time to cultivate other relationships in coaching as much. So, you know, one of my, my best friend to this day is Michael Short, who I was a student coach for us at Heflin High School, and so we had that niche of people there. With coach McGuire and david easley and tim perkins and michael short and robert clemens who's dead now but uh and then atlanta i met joel williams and had a group of guys there that we and joel did a great job i learned a lot from joel williams in the social part of it because he was very i mean he really pushed that part of it to where we were going to get together as a staff and our families would get together on Saturday afternoons, you know, and we would have a cookout or a pool party or whatever, you know, during the summer. Then during the season, we would do that also uh, on Saturday afternoons. But So you, you develop that bond, and I think it makes your staff work harder together. And then, you know, of course at, at Hoover, probably not as much, but still we did. I mean, we still did things together, and other coaches' wives would chip in and i was very big about that and then when i got to south georgia my wife she really picked that part up i mean she was really good at entertainment and we had a really nice house and and we had a lot of functions at our house and so the big thing that i liked about coaching uh and i did it more in south georgia than i even did at hoover is that having the staff and their families over but then even when they didn't come over, I would have players. I would cook every weekend. I had to deal with this meat company there in town. I could go get the meat, they it wouldn't charge me. And I'd get all the meat I needed to get, and I would cook for the players on the weekend. And I'd cook for 10 to 15 people. And, they, you know, sometimes there'd be six or seven come. Sometimes there'd be 15 to come. And I had a really nice pool. And... So we we enjoyed that, and I think that um, that part I missed that part as much as the Friday night. I missed the player relationships uh, with doing that, uh, and I did it at Hoover too, 'cause I'd always have a senior party. Uh, but the coaches' camaraderie—that's what you become—is your your uh, your wife connects the dots with other wives and girlfriends, and then your coaches. And some, but you have to have that fine line of, you know, I'm the boss. They're the assistant. But then again, I've never been the one that wants to to be that guy that, hey, it's my way or the highway, you know, because I want, I want other coaches to have input. So that's one reason I would bring them in and we would do family things because they would feel more comfortable. And if they needed to argue with me about something, you know, I had no problem with that. And so – but, but because – Brothers argue.
2: Yeah, you can argue.
1: Yeah. (laughs) That's right. Brothers can argue. But at the end of the day, when we walked out of there, you know, we was all on the same page, and I think we were for the most part. So, no, that's probably the thing I missed today more than anything, is player relationships uh, and coaches' camaraderie and doing things together. um,
2: You're, You're great at that you're great though. It's hard work working hard, but you have a good time too. Like go, you know, we went to Gunnersboro and you yep. cooked fish for us and yep. like going to the National Championship, going to see you 2 or something like that, going to Alabama games and yep. concerts and stuff. Yeah. So, we
1: had a lot of fun. Well, yeah. you know, you got to you got to have some fun when you get you get a little time off. You got to have some fun because you do grind it and you work hard, but but that's just the way it is and I think um you know, all the way through my last year at at about to 2020, you know, the, it was tougher then because of COVID, so you didn't do as much in 2020. Uh, but still, you know, we did, we did, we did find time to, to do things whenever we could. So, yeah, that uh, those things are things that I miss the most about coaching.
0: What's the biggest difference between coaching in the late 80s, early 90s, even before then, and,
1: you know, now? Well, I mean, it's just daylight and dark. I mean, kids kids are not much different. People say kids are different. Kids are not that much different. Um, they crave structure. They crave discipline, especially the ones you're going to win with. I mean, you know, but uh, I've always had a knack of being able to not run one off. If I've run a player off, he may have. Kill somebody or something. I mean, or rob the bank. I mean, it would just have to be that severe for me to run one off because I just don't believe you're not going to run your own children off, you know. So you got to you got to continue, it's conditional love, but uh, you know you got to continue to make try to make that kid successful some way somehow. And some are tougher than others, but uh, the difference in coaching today and schematically, it's different. I mean, there's no doubt the game has changed. Um, you know, I think we helped change it in Alabama with the th- spread. You know, the spread in '98, '99. We were the only team in Alabama that was in a spread throw offense first. You know, and then you know Bill was innovative defensively and in what he was doing uh, defensively, creating his own things that he wanted to do, and we were creating the things offensively that we wanted to do. And I think, I think both of us to a certain extent may have been pioneers at, at, at that kind of stuff. And then when I went to Georgia, well too I gotta give credit to, to somebody else too, is when we when I left Hoover, Chip Lindsay went with me not to same school but to the same state. He went to Lassiter High School in Atlanta and I went to South Georgia and no one in Georgia was running spread offense. Yeah, yeah. Everybody was in a wing team, mm-hmm. Power Eye, Veer, whatever the run the ball. So the first game I think Chip threw five or six touchdown passes with Hudson Mason at Lasseter, and I threw seven in our first ball game. And that made news, the line of journal constitution. And and it just caught on. And we started – he started winning. I started winning. We actually played each other in 09 in the quarterfinals. They were undefeated. We had lost a game or two. But we go up there and beat them at, at Lasseter in a huge ball game. and But I, I – I do think that the game has changed from schematic concepts. Um, You know, it was, what, five years ago the RPO game came in. Now there's that RPO opposite that just came in last year um, on how you read the RPO. You used to read only one side. Now you can read both sides. So there's things in in that defensively I think that, you know, the speed on defense is just – I mean, if you can't run – if you can't run, you can't play defense. I mean, that's I mean, there's, the speed part of it is the most important part because of the spread. You got to match speed with speed. So the big old thick bulky linebackers, you, you don't see as many of those. You may see one, but you don't see as many. And I think you'll see that this year at Alabama is that you know when they play with six DBs a lot of the time. So uh, to be able to play what Coach calls regular defense you don't see anymore. So everybody's in nickel or dime mm-hmm. a lot. So that's changed. But here's the other thing that's changed in the last fifteen years is strength and conditioning. I remember in ninety nine, two thousand, compared to what we were doing at Asheville in eighty nine and ninety and ninety one. Fast forward ten years, Tennessee, if you remember, we took a group to Tennessee to work to do a conditioning deal. I think we took six or eight guys up there to do what they were doing at that time in their speed enhancement speed development stuff with, with, with coach stuckey uh, or dr stuckey however you want to call him he was the kingpin at tennessee at that time 91 92 93 right in there and then moffett lsu there were about three of them that went different places so the strength stuff started to change at hoover we started adapting strength things and then another huge push came in 2011 in the strength and conditioning then there's been another push the last four years you know it ain't all about way cochran did alabama the hard nosed tough power lifting stuff now it's all scientific based um it's completely different than it was you and then the nutritional fact i think that's another thing that we were pioneers We started, we didn't do this at Asheville, started a little bit in in Mobile. Yeah, we did it in Mobile going into the 98 season. Got to Hoover, probably fell off a little bit because we felt like the kids all came from pretty good homes and they ate pretty good, but then we advanced it even more. But when I went to South Georgia, guys, nutrition was at the forefront of what I believed in. I thought our nutrition habits, led by my wife, Stephanie Proke's, did a phenomenal, I'm not talking about a good job, a phenomenal job with the things that she brought to the table, learning what needed to be fed, when, when it needed to be fed, how we worked during the week, and, and what we ate during the week, and how she planned meals during the week, because we were feeding those kids breakfast, snacks, after school, and at night. We feed them four times a day at Cockwick County, and it was easier there because we're an agricultural produce county, the biggest Mm -hmm. east of the Mississippi. So we had all these fresh vegetables and had all this stuff, and she organized a mom's group. And to this day, we were the leading group doing that. No one in the country was doing what we were doing in 2010, 11, 12, eating got better and better as we went. And, you know, they built us a $10 million indoor facility, or not $10 million, $6 million indoor facility, full length. We built a cafeteria nutrition center for athletes. And so now that will be the norm. Here's what will change. In 10 years, guys, maybe 15, the norm will be at the bigger schools, indoor facility, nutrition centers, just like in college football. We started that back in 10 and 11, 12 and advanced it every year and got better at it each year. And guys, yeah, I'm just telling you, it's, it's, if you see what Alabama's done in the last 10 years, and actually last five or six years, you know, when Coach built that nutrition center down there, it's phenomenal. But we had a good one now, and how, we were the first that, to do it.
0: How much of that first state championship at Colquitt was, bait, Was would you give credit to the nutrition stuff that you <sighs> and Stephanie were doing? Well,
1: I'd say that was, the, that was the main thing. That was the defining thing. Well, two things. It went hand in hand with our strength and conditioning. Our Sean Sutton, I hired him in the 11, and I hired Travis Pearson in the 11. Both those guys, I was having treatment for cancer, as I'm going to Birmingham for treatment, I'm hiring them in there, you know, late January. And I told them, I said, when I get back in June, I want the defensive culture changed. We just lost 52-38 in the state championship game in 10. And we had 685 yards of offense, 38 first down, still records, but we lost the game. So we cha- I wanted the defensive culture changed, and I want a strength and conditioning culture changed. When I got back, that was changed. And so Steph upped her game in the nutrition part. So strength and conditioning along with nutrition was the it was one A and one B in winning back to back state titles. And you know, we was talking about this yesterday and I don't want to get too much on Calquet, but ten we could have won it. Eleven the officials took it from us in the semifinals. Actually, the officials wrote an apology letter to me the following year and apologized for the three calls on that last drive that cost us the state title. 12, we wasn't good enough. We got beaten in the semis. Norcross was really good. Well, Lorenzo Carter and mm-hmm. the great running back. But, but my point being is Alvin Kamari. But 13, we should have won it. 14, we did win it. 15, we won it. 16, no. And in 17 and 18, we lost back to back. You know, lost on a Hail Mary and, then, and a last second field goal. And then obviously lost 14, 13. Had the ball first and goal to one and it didn't score to lose that game. So, but the success of that program, winning 37, 38 playoff games in 10 years, which has never been done in the largest classification in the state of Georgia, was done by nutrition strength and conditioning. We were way ahead of everybody else in the state of Georgia when it came to that. Now you're starting to see teams build these facilities and copycat the nutrition program that we're doing. And I think now, will it ever come to Asheville High School or Heflin High School or Ohatchee High School? That would be tough from an indoor facility. But you, you gotta look at the safety part of it and you know, PE department part of it, your band, your, other extracurriculars that can use it, Special Olympics and all that stuff. To me, it's the most sensible building that you can build on your campus in today's world. Um, you know, and some people, may, you may not can build a whole 120-yard length, when, but you could build sort of what Hartzell has or, mm-hmm. you know, what Bill yeah. built at Prattville. But, but my point being with all that, nutrition, strength and conditioning, and I think you'll still see the upwards of... Um, um, Advancements in technology is different nowadays. I, I think when you're looking at, at what you're doing technology wise, uh, here's a big thing iPads, guys. Mm-hmm. iPads on the sideline. We didn't do that, but you know, that started in Georgia in f- 13. You could legally have an iPad on the sideline. So here's a play run, here's another play run, here's another play run, or right, an offense off the field. You can take that iPad. And I'm looking at the iPad running through those three plays as the players are getting water. Well, dang, look at that. We made this mistake, that mistake, this mistake, that mistake. You take it over. You, it's hooked up on the, your big screen on the sideline. You got an offensive uh, TV and a defensive TV. The offense looks at it and goes, look, this. Is, you see what we're doing here? So that's changed the game a lot because now guess what? At halftime, outside of your last drive, that you're on the field. Everything's already, the halftime adjustments are already done before you get to halftime, except for that last drive. So that's changed a lot. So the technology of iPads on the sideline are are probably one of the biggest innovations of technology that's happened to high school football in the last eight or nine years. So those things are are very important.
0: What's the biggest difference that you found? Because you've coached in both states. And I, I don't know, you know, there's there's a lot of arguing between both states about who cares about <laughs> high school football more. You know, Texas likes to call themselves the yeah. the king of high school football, but between Alabama and Georgia, you know, you've coached in both and you've seen both. Who, who, who kind of corners the market when it comes to high school football?
1: I think when I was at Alabama, well, Alabama's always put a lot of emphasis in high school football. It always has. And it goes all the way back to Coach Bryant and Coach Jordan and Auburn. In Coach Bryant, Albert at Alabama, the importance, and even for Coach Bryant, high school football was important in the state because Alabama and Auburn, you know, Alabama, Auburn won a national championship in '57. Mm-hmm. You know, and Coach Thomas and, and all that, in you know, the 20s, Alabama, I had a great uncle who was an all conference player, the Southern Conference at Alabama, played in the Rose Bowl, coached in the Rose Bowl. But my point being at Alabama, but I think that high school football in Alabama has always been very important. When I was at Hoover you, in 05, 06, 07, you didn't have, you, now South Georgia, mm-hmm. very important. Valdosta, Tiv, Colquitt, Lowndes. But Lowndes didn't, it, it didn't become a high school in the early 60s, but Valdosta, 1913. Colquitt, 1913, TIF, 1914, Thomasville, 1913, Cairo, Bainbridge, those big schools down there, Blue Bloods, they've always, football's always been important, but Atlanta was not. Yeah. So you had McEachern, Brookwood, Hartview; those three schools in Atlanta. That's it. And then you had your South team. That's why Valdosta was dominating all those championships back then. So guess what happens? About 7,08, we go to South Georgia. Chip goes up there. The culture starts to change a little bit. Coaches start – Gwinnett County starts flooding money into athletics, mm-hmm. especially football. So Atlanta just explodes. I'm talking about it explodes in 9, 10, 11, 12. Grace Grayson, Mickey Connick, Grayson, uh, now Collins Hill. But I, Archer. Uh, Mill Creek, big schools, thirty-five hundred kids, and football becoming facilities were really good. Coaches paid well, not having a huge class load, so they started doing a lot of things to help high school football in Atlanta. And when that happened, the state it became important. I, I told Kirby Smart in my office in 2015. He came to see me in '15. He said, "Rush, what do you think's wrong with the University of Georgia? I want that job." And I said, "Well, Kirby, here's the six things that are wrong." And I named all six things comparably to what Alabama was doing. Yeah. And he agreed on all of it. And he's got every bit of that change since he's been there. Now, Kirby, Kirby went into perfect time to Georgia. You know. And I think that was off season of 14 before 15 because he stayed one more year. But my point w- with that is Kirby went to Georgia at a perfect time because Atlanta is booming with high school football players. There's 80 to 100 Division one prospects in that state where Alabama has about 30, 25. Now, this year is a really good year. This is the best year Alabama's had since 2002 as far as prospects in the state of Alabama. You know, Alabama's loaded, especially with D linemen. But I think – when you go back and look at it, Georgia's the last 10 to 15 years, as far as a statewide, the importance of high school football is extremely important now and matches Alabama's importance. Where before, the, before that, 15 years ago, it was only important at three schools in Atlanta and South Georgia yeah. at the Blue Bloods. So that was the difference. Where in Alabama, it's just as important in Mobile as it was in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. Now, arguably, you know, the Huntsville area and the Decatur Florence area has not had as much success. I don't know why. Because there's numbers up there and there's money and there's resources.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of resources up that way. I,
1: I think eventually someone, there'll be a superintendent that wants to win, like Hoover, Thompson. You know, Thompson has taken the range from Hoover but um, I think when someone decides okay we're gonna make football important at Bob Jones or James Clements or whatever then it'll just explode and and I think Florence can do some good things I really do think Florence high school could be another really good job eventually if the right person gets in it gets there and it, it all boils down to the superintendent board of education and principal if them three people are on board to making your football program important, then it's going to be important because the resources are there. So, in my opinion, um, when you look at both states, Alabama and Georgia, I, you know, it used to be I always thought the better coaching was in Alabama, better players in Georgia because because of numbers. Because mm-hmm. Georgia has 10 million people versus Alabama, a little shade less than five million. But I think it's all changed. I think that the coaching in Georgia has gotten a lot better. And the programs have gotten a lot better, and I think it's on equal ground with Alabama. There's just more Division One prospects in Georgia based upon population.
0: What's, uh, as, as we kind of wrap it up, what, what's next for Rush Probst?
1: You know, I made a commitment. You know, I could have done some things. It's an analyst position in college football, this, this this coming right now in 22, but I made a – a promise to my son, Thomas, who will be a senior at Piedmont, starting wide receiver. He's the Y. Um, he'd been through a lot, you know. He'd been through a lot with my dismissal, as, you know, when he was an eighth grader at Colquitt. So he, he's, I kept him at Colquitt as I was coaching at UAB as a ninth grader, so I was away from him. He goes to Valdosta, with me in 20, and then he breaks his dang narvicular bone in his foot, I've been coaching 40 years. I've only had one of those, and it was my dang son. And then he had to have surgery, and he was out for a year. He wasn't really healthy until this past October. And at Piedmont, he was a junior receiver on the state championship team. So going into his senior year, I took him to Lance Rhodes and Blake Prime's Godspeed conditioning Mm -hmm. place down in Birmingham because they both played for me, and he worked out down there a good bit. Uh, to make himself a six-two, hundred pounds wide receiver that runs probably four-seven-five, 5". Uh, you know, so I, I wanted to see him play. I wanted to be a dad. I wanted to share every night he came in from practice. I wanted to say, son, how'd it go? And I don't go to practice a lot. I'm, you, I may go to one practice per month. And so uh, maybe, you know, I think I went to two last year. So I don't want to get in Steve's way. Steve's done a great job at Piedmont. Steve's a great coach. He's a great coach. And, I, and I'm not going to do anything to be a distraction. I don't even sit in the stand. I sort of sit away and stand up and be around the end zone where I can see. But uh, but I, I just wanted to be a dad. It was really cool last year. You know, I put a tweet out that I'd been involved with uh, 14 championship games, 13 as a coach, 12 as a head coach, 12 state championship games ahead head coach, one as an assistant coach, and then um, one as a dad. And I thought I was as happy and as satisfied with last year's state championship at Piedmont being a dad sitting in the stands as I ever was on the other 13. So, to me, I wasn't going to miss that. So, if I went to work for two people, I wouldn't I'd have missed this whole senior year I might got I might could have seen one or two ball games so why why would I do that yeah I mean I you know now money's tight I ain't gonna lie money's tight right now for us and and uh it's difficult but I just decided hey this is what I'm gonna do so next for me is come December he's finished uh, I'll throw my ring back in the hat and see what's out there um whether it be in Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, or Mississippi, or Florida, I'll look on the next level as an analyst. But at 64 years of age, you know, your time's starting to run out there, although I could have done it this past year uh, or this right now, but I didn't. So I'll see if those opportunities are still there for me, and, and I'll judge if it's important. If I think it's going to head to something, I will go do it. If not, I'll try to find a high school job. But I'll say this. I'm not taking a high school job unless the community, the superintendent, the principal, the board of education, the mayor, the city council. Everybody is going to have to be as hungry as I am to want to be successful. I think Coach Saban said it best when he went to Alabama and and back in 2007, that press conference. Pull it up and listen to what he said. That is the best speech he's ever given on bringing, tying everything together. And if, and if I can't find that place, then I won't get back in it. I'll only get back in it if I feel like they're just as hungry as I am and everybody's on board to do whatever it takes from facilities to to laying out the schedule during the day to everything that's got to be done to make that program in that town successful. Because I'm going to tell you something. Go back, and we'll talk about this later. What did the 92 football team do here at Asheville? What did the 98 football team Mm -hmm. do at Alma Bryant? What did all those good teams at Hoover do to Hoover? And what did all those things do? What did it do for – Colquitt County, and then my last year, we get my first year at Valdosta, we go to semifinals, get beat by Buford in the semis. My point, man, is a winning football program at your school makes things in the community and everything just better.
0: You can't argue against that. No, it you does. can't. And
1: and, and the academia and people that want to argue that, they're just wrong. They're just flat wrong. And if most of them that argue it never put on a helmet or a cleat or a tennis shoe, or, or wore a bat, uh, batting helmet, so, or, or dived in a pool, for that matter. So, I mean, I, I think that those are important things. You laugh. You got about the jockstrap. Well, yeah, I don't want to say that. But <laughs> you, you laugh. <laughs> hey, but Coughwood County, we had a phenomenal diving program. Every kid that was a senior at Coughwood, and it went to Tennessee, Auburn, Georgia, on diving scholarships. Unbelievable. And uh, you'd think in a country town like that, that it would, you wouldn't have that. But we did. But anyway, uh, that, that's where we are. And I, I just think that's what's next for Rush is yeah. if Hey, and if it doesn't materialize, it doesn't materialize. I'll build me a place right here in Waldrop Road, right here in mm-hmm. Asheville, and I'll uh, enjoy my last 15, 20 years of life and, and and be okay with it. Last, very last thing, and this is
0: for both of y'all. So y'all can answer in whatever order you want to. What's the best thing football's given to you? <laughs> Well,
2: first of all, i never heard of the narbicular bone, but uh, (laughs) friendship, just right here, just sitting here. It's just like, I probably hadn't talked to you in, I don't don't know, 10 years probably. Probably. But, you know, it's just like you just pick up where you left off, Mm -hmm. you
1: know, so friendships. For me, the same camaraderie, but what football did for me was structure, structure, discipline. Um, a purpose in life uh, outside of my personal Savior in Jesus who's really really been heavily pulled on him a lot lately in, in the last few years and he's really helped me a lot uh, I think outside of my faith in Christianity I think just structure, discipline and a purpose in life of why you get up in the morning and and do what you do. So that's that's what I miss. I miss the camaraderie. I miss the grind. I miss the structure. I miss the discipline. I miss I miss all the all the things that go into a Friday night and all the off season and all the things that you do. And when you talk about this philosophy being a philosophy segment, there's four there's four quarters getting ready for our football season. First, first phase or first quarter is the off season, which goes from January, February, March, mid-April. Second phase is two to three weeks prior to spring ball, spring ball. That's phase two. Phase three is your summer work and the 30, 31, 32 days that you spend in the summer coaching your players, strength and conditioning, add to what you did in phase one phase two phase four is fall camp and doing everything you do in fall camp taking them to camp like i used to do doing everything you and then with all those four phases then it's the season but what i enjoy phase one phase two phase three phase four leading up to the season that's what i miss phase one phase two phase three phase four i miss that part and that's what I want to get back to. Coach, we appreciate it. Coach Murphy, we appreciate it.
0: Gentlemen, Thank I thoroughly you. enjoyed it. Guys, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it, whether it's on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, we really do appreciate it. You can watch this on Spotify. Make sure you know that if you're listening to this somewhere. Go ahead and get on Spotify and watch it. Like You can see our faces. I know that probably scares you because I don't have the prettiest face on the planet. But go ahead and check us out on uh, on spotify rate, review subscribe to the podcast i really do appreciate these two guys
1: well the last thing i want to say i do apologize like i said i've had this dental work so if i if i didn't sound very clear today it's because i'm having all this dental work done for the for my teeth as far as going through all that actually i gotta go to uab tomorrow so hopefully within the next few months they can get all this stuff corrected
0: Coach, we're praying for you, man. Thank for you, for coming on, seriously. Coach, yeah, thank you. we appreciate it. It's
1: been a blast.
0: Guys, enjoyed it. Tune in next time. We'll see you. Appreciate it.